Good to see you. My name is Steve. I'm one of the elders here. Uh, interesting day here for our community because in our midst we have the uh, person who is going to be serving as our interim minister over the next few months. His name is Chris. We're not going to make Chris stand up today. This is very low key. And some of you, if you can't find him, you'll, you'll figure it out. So, uh, so Chris is here, his wife Sarah. I'm not going to introduce the kids because apparently I can't even remember names well, so I called Brinkley McKenzie, and because I repeated that, then I'm going to start calling her the wrong name over and over again because I'm a horrible, horrible person. But what you all need to do is tell Brinkley it's okay because Mr. Steve is a horrible, horrible person. So you're like, we can take up that mantle, Steve. Thank you. Um, but we're glad that uh, Chris is going to be with serving us. We're going to ease him into it. So um, I'm wrapping up some things that we've been talking about the past few weeks. We're going to start a study series on Daniel that will take us all the way to Easter. Um, so um, it's going to be a, a great time. Spring is near, regardless of what the groundhog says, we're going to make the best of it. So we're glad that you're here to worship with us this morning. Kind of wrapping up the series that we've done since the beginning of the year, we did this series on human, basically looking at the, the dualistic perspective on the world in which we live with um, the evolutionists on one side and the evangelical on the other and trying to figure out how we move through that. So really, you know, I was just telling Dylan, I was like, today is basically what I should have done at the beginning as an introduction. So I'm doing the introduction at the end, but really it might help because I think it might help us to make sense of what we're doing. And then, especially even in this transition time, because, you know, I've been used to doing lots of preaching here over the years and keep trying to push away from that just to be one of the people in the crowd. If I'm trying to summarize a 13-year running experience within this congregation, like, what would I say that I've learned throughout it? And I think this is um, the means by which we will accomplish that. And... Um, in doing so, really, I want to look at a verse that we mentioned last week uh, and that we read in community today, and you'll recognize it possibly because it's from the 23rd Psalm, which is one of those Bible verses that you should know. It begins with, the Lord is my shepherd. And in the midst of this, we see this idea of walking through the valley of the shadow of death with no fear because God is with us. And today, what we're going to look at is a life in the author uh, an incident in the life of this author that maybe speaks profoundly to this powerful verse. But I have to start off then with an anecdote, a story of mine from the last years of living here. And again, we were, uh, I was born and raised on the west side, and when I was about six years old, my parents bought a nice tract of land uh, out uh, what at that point was in the boonies, but it quickly became suburban west side in the Bridgetown Oak Hills area. But every week we would drive back in for church to Price Hill where my father and his family came to Christ. So that was, there was this transition every week from living in the burbs to moving right into the city. So that's why I feel like it was part of our lives when 13 years ago God called Kelly, my pregnant wife and I, to the city to say, let's start a church. And one of the things about coming into that is I just knew it would be froth with wonderful experiences. And uh, I introduce an experience today with this, um, which is a baseball bat. And I don't know, you know, I, I know I am a towering figure and stuff because you're like, wow, he wields that bat with his massive, massive hands. But the reality is, is that this is a kid's baseball bat. 
that was gifted to us from Kelly's father because there was a point a few years ago when we, you know, we would take Kalen to Reds games and then there was this realization that she actually had never played baseball. So we're like, we're Americans. I think it's something that we're obligated to do. You know, I think it's in the Constitution. So as such, it's like we needed to train her. And this was actually Kelly's baseball bat from when she was learning how to play too. So you can see it's rather generic. It's old school style. And um, we had this baseball bat. And I would keep it in the front closet just for when we would go out out and swing some balls, and really we hadn't done much with it since. I, I really think, you really don't have much of a baseball swing, do you, hon? It's okay. That's why you play soccer. It's great. Um, served a dualistic purpose, because when we told people that we were going to move into the city, they actually became fearful for our very safety, to the extent that I had people willing to throw handguns at me to say, look, you need to protect your family and you need a firearm, which is cool for me, because I'm like, I like free guns. Like, it's a good policy. Like, if we were handing them out today, you know, maybe some of you would have, like, different social periods. But you might just be like, you know, I'll take me a free gun. If at least, just for coolness, I don't know. But my wife, I grew up among guns. My wife did not. And she was just like, I don't want a firearm in our house. And that was fine with me. So the next best thing was a baseball bat. And notice that, too, um, it's not even a robust baseball bat. But it's a bat nonetheless. And the reason I had to keep that is because when we lived on Gilbert Avenue, and you know, if you're not familiar, it's Gilbert is the main thoroughfare that takes you from Walnut Hills into downtown. And as a result, there was always people walking past us on the sidewalk, and some of those people were quasi-nefarious, so there was always something interesting. Like, from our nine years living there, I have some great stories about Steve's intervention into community life. Like, and some of you have heard these stories, but I made it very um, apparent in this move where I was just like, I am not going to stand by, I'm going to get involved. There was one time a men's Bible study where these kids like littered right outside of the park side. And I, you know, I just hopped up and I ran and yelled at them and made them come back and pick it up. Because I'm like, this is my neighborhood, my community. I'm going to assert myself, not with a posture of timidity, but with one of bravery. Because I was like, this is why we moved here and we're going to get involved with that or possible. A few years ago, I could tell because we had this town home and glass windows up front, something was happening out front, and I kind of stood over and was able to look at it. And there was a man who was beating on his significant other, his girlfriend or his wife. And he was swinging very much so. So Kelly and Kaylin happened to be upstairs, and I yelled up at Ke Kelly this thing that, if it was the first time I had uttered it, it might have been peculiar, but I said, call 911, something's happening on the street. And as I came, you know, went to the doorway, I pulled out my trusty bat, and I went to the street. Now, in those few moments, I got angry. And I think some of you, maybe you've seen the side of me. If not, this is going to be my confessional booth of which you're participants. But I do have this anger. And you can, you know, say it's a red-headed anger. Or you could say it's a west-sided anger. But there was this thing to where I have a high value of justice. And an injustice would be this man hitting on this woman. So I bounded down our stairs. And by this time, they were closely. She was off the sidewalk. And he was still on it. And I darted between the two of them with my bat. And I pointed it at him. There was enough that I didn't actually have to swing it. And this was that moment, right, where I was like, I'm going to get involved. I'm going to stand here. And you try to assess the situation. And I was like, he's bigger than me. But, I, you know, I'm scrappy, y'all. And when you're scrappy and you have a baseball bat 
and you're willing to get involved, I like those odds. So there's that point, and this is what I have to tell you about living in the city, which makes it peculiar, is there's that point where you have to understand how you're going to interact. And sometimes in those situations, you have to disjar. You have to put them on their heels. So not only did I have the bat sticking it through it, as I uttered some choice words for the man, and there are children present here, but I will just, you know, we're, we're PG-ish, 13 type of crowd. But, but I will say this, is I just immediately started cussing at him, in no uncertain terms that if he took another step, I was going to get involved physically, and his life would be worse for the wear. And at this point, the woman's backing up to the point she's in the street, and I'm staying right with her. And he's taking steps forwards, and I was like, this is going to go down. But it, so that's why I assured him over and over again. I was like, I will take you, and you will not like it. I was like, you will stay there. The weird thing about living in the city sometimes is you're surprised at how quickly the police can react. Usually you're thinking about how slow it is, but I think at some point the police car was very nearby because this scene did not have to escalate any further. And it might have been just happenstance, I don't even know, that we were standing on a major thoroughfare and, you know, the police car came in, hit the lights and pulled over. And at that point the man was just like, nothing's happening here and you know, they basically saw me standing with a baseball bat at him. I was like, this guy was hitting this woman and you need to get involved. And they did. They immediately cuffed him. They put him down on the curb. And it's at this point that I start to think about my life. Because I'm like, uh, we have windows. And I don't know where my daughter was exactly, but I didn't want her to be staring out the window in the street to hear her dad saying very unmentionable words, which now she thinks is just commonplace, by the way. I didn't want her to think that she was in danger, so I bounded upstairs and come to find out she had not seen a thing. And I don't think I've ever told you story, this story before, is that she might not even have known that it's ever actually happened. What seems to happen and has happened in our country's history is that we practice geographical segregation. Because of things like this, cities were deemed unsafe, and it really it escalated after the Second World War. And as a result, people began to, uh, middle class people with, with the ability to move and stuff, they began to push out of the cities, and they basically lived in a suburban place where they really encountered their own safety, right? That they were, they were in a position to where they could protect themselves. But what's been interesting over the past few years is that dichotomy no longer exists because those urban problems have now come to suburbia and even to rural America. I love it this past week, and I don't love this, but just as an example, so I better preface that, is that a minister friend of mine this week who lives in a very rural town came out of his front door this week to go drive to the office and realized his car had been stolen. You know, he lived in one of these neighborhoods that were safe. And he's like, I should be able to leave my doors unlocked. And they still have yet to recover the man's car. Another minister friend of mine lives in a community, one of these communities that you would move to, and the vast majority of his ministry time is spent in heroin ministry. It's everywhere now, and you can no longer geographically censor safety from where you're at. And you have to have this determination then, if I'm going to live now, how shall I act? In a world of gray, what does it mean to stand in the light and to walk for the Lord. 
So if you have your pew Bibles right here, blue Bible, you can pull that out. If you have a technical, a digital, a technical, a digital device, we're in second, or in First Samuel 17. Excuse me, First Samuel 17. And again, this is one of the most famous stories in the Bible. Even the pagans have heard of David and Goliath. But it's so helpful for us as the people of God to take another look at that. As I'm prone to do, and I don't know, again, I'll be preaching less, so we just got to get our fill of this, right? So we've got to go to a map eventually. But as we break down this verse, I walk through the valley of shadow of death. We begin with the walk. What does the walk look like? So let me go to my map right here. And understand that this was the status of the promised land of God's people about a thousand years before Jesus was born. Do you remember the history of this? Like God's people were captive um, by the Egyptians. They were enslaved. God said, I'll deliver you. And their response was, hey God, it was better in Egypt. And he was so angry, he said, look, I'm going to kill off an entire generation. Forty years in the wilderness before you take the promised land. He does that. And when they're at the foot of the promised land, God says, just one rule clear it out I don't want anybody left behind here this is your land take possession of it and I am with you and what's funny when you read the book of Joshua there's all these incidences where God's people go into battle they should have lost he allows them to win and then they stop and they're like well that's good enough like we took the good place the rest they'll get the hint they never get the hint so a few hundred years after this, a sea-dwelling people named the Philistines arrived and they established certain towns. So on the left, that little blue over there is the Mediterranean Sea. They arrived in their boats, they established five major cities, and they had what was the western part of the promised land. Whereas God's people had a firm foothold on the eastern half of this. And what this does is it creates some tension because the Philistines want more land. And the Israelites want to hold on to what they have, and eventually there's a battle. We read about it in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 2 and 3. Saul, who was the king at the time, and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah, and they drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill, the Israelites another, with the valley between them. So what we see then is the dividing line. What they were doing, they were walking in a land, in an area that was supposed to be theirs, but it was not. And such a walk can, be, can make you feel a, a little bit nervous, right? Usually your apprehension from walking from your living room to your kitchen is not high. You're not, oh no, going to the kitchen, I'm going to get jumped. We usually see that when we're out in public, when we're thinking about the absolute worst. Their apprehension was high because the land that they had wasn't really theirs. They were walking. Where were they walking? They were walking through the valley. The name of this valley is the Valley of Ella. There was actually a movie um, with Tommy Lee Jones a few years ago with this in its title. But I understand that this is an actual place in the Bible. It truly exists. And actually, when Kelly and I were, he, were in Israel in 2005, we had a chance to drive into the Valley of Ella. 
It's a very interesting place. It's a sweeping valley. And you can see this is a picture. I don't know if you can see perspective from where you're at. But this picture is taken from one hillside. You see the valley below. And there's another hillside. And this would have been where the Israelites and the Philistines met in their conflict. Because it was this central area. This place was so important. Because you're just like, what's so significant about this valley? And I, I should say this too. Is this one of the things that I love about Israel is people are like, it's just like this really big desert. No, there's some beautiful verdant lands. And the Shephela, this area, is known well for agriculture. But it wasn't just for growing things that they wanted to have the valley. It was the major east-west artery that connected the land of Israel. So I don't know if you can see our yellow star in the middle there, approximately where the Valley of Elo was. But you have the Dead Sea to the Med, for the Dead to the Med, the span of what is the land of Israel that road ran right through where the valley was. In essence, if you controlled the valley, you controlled the country. Hence why the Philistines wanted it. And they had advanced. Hence why the people of God, even though they hadn't had an organized army, since they took possession of the lands hundreds of years ago, you have farmers and shepherds all coming to say, we are going to fight because it's very important for us to maintain this land in the valley of Ella. So what we have then in this scene are the people on two hills. The Israelites on one side, the Philistines on the other, and the valley between. Now, if you've grown up in church, and a lot of us have, and if you have this framework from understanding what the Bible is, this all makes good biblical sense because we view the world in which we live as dualistic, right? There's two different sides. You have the Israelites on one side, the Philistines on the other. Or if you prefer a different vernacular, you have the holy on one side and the heathens on the other. Or maybe even a little more uh, brief, good versus evil on opposite hills. And let's be honest, as we view the hills, we even break it down to something more robust as us versus them. In this dualistic way is how we often view where we live, right? There's walking through the valley, but we have no desire to really be in the, ha in the valley because our people are on the hill. Their people are on the other hill. This is the good hill. That's the bad hill. And in my way of thinking then, my goal is to remain on this hill because on this hill I have safety and community, right? Like this is our hill. I know I don't want to be on the other hill, because the other hill is where the bad people are, the evil people are, and I want to spend no time there at all. So why even bother going through the valley? I walk through the valley, and it's even scarier because it's not just any nondescript valley, it's the valley of the shadow of death. I love the ominous feeling behind what that valley is. Here in the valley, in the, on, the, on the precipice of the valley, we see a person. We see the opposition, the personification of all that is evil. I was thinking about this. I even asked Kelly this week. I was like, is there a bigger villain in the Bible than Goliath? 
Even somebody, like if you're just like, who's a horrible person? Like, you know, there's not everybody who goes around and says, you know, Goliath gets a really bad rap. Like we know nothing good about him to where we're like, yeah, let's, let's cheer for the big giant instead of the underdog. There's just nothing there. As we open up the scriptures, however, in verses 4 through 9, we get this description of who Goliath is. He was over 9 feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head, wore a coat of scale armor of bronze, weighing 5,000 shekels. And on his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. Somebody's like, that's a lot of shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him, but Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we'll become your subjects. But if I overcome and kill him, we will, uh, you will become our subjects and then serve us. A few things about this gets lost in translation. Because, you know, you're like, I have no idea about shekels. That's fine. It's a measurement of weight. But what's interesting is that while we have the English translation here, that Goliath was over nine feet tall, and again, some of you are like, well, that's impossible, right? You know, there's a lot that happens in the Bible that's miraculous. If this is where you're getting hung up, just let it happen. It'll be fine. The idea is that we understand is that the dude was very tall. In fact, in the original Hebrew, the translation isn't that he was nine feet tall. It was that he was uh, six cubics and a span, which equals nine foot And you're like, Steve, why is that important? Because understand what's happening throughout this text right here. How tall was he? He was six cubits and a span. How much did the dude's uh, spear weigh his javelin? I lost it, 600 shekels. You know what's interesting is how many pieces of armament is described within this text? Six total. If you know anything about the Bible, the number six is an interesting number. The number seven in the Bible is the number of perfection, and that's God's number. The number six is one less, and when put together, that is actually the number of the devil, of Satan, 666, right? In this text, there's a repeating of six and six and six, and what we're supposed to say is that, oh, this is the guy that stands against God. This is the personification of evil. There is nothing good and redemptive about Goliath, and he is coming toward the valley to say, look, I am here to... The one other thing I even forgot is that it it says he wore scale armor. Do I have that on this thing? I've lost it. Scale armor. It's not like he wore miniature armor. It's not like scaled for your Barbie doll. No, it it is scale as if it had scales as if he was a snake. So everything around us is that this dude is bad. Who wants to then listen to the heathen railing against the holy God and say, I'll go down to the valley and meet the nine-foot giant? They're not lining up. In fact, nobody wants to deal with Goliath at all. In fact, what they say is like, look, I'm going to stay up here on the hill because on the hill I'm with all these other people. And maybe God will bring somebody just brave enough to go down to do it. And, and, and we'll cheer for them. And we'll say, you go get them. And hopefully they'll win because, you know, God is on the good side and they're on the bad side. Let's just stay up here on the hill because it is very safe here and venturing into the valley of the shadow of death is not where I want to be. And being on the hill allows certain advantages, right? Like if there's anything that we learned 
through George Lucas's monstrosity of prequels, it's the value of higher ground, correct? Right? So if I stay up here, that was for you, Dylan. Dylan loves a prequel, Star Wars joke of it's great. Oh, no, I didn't put the picture. Where's the picture? Dang it. I lost it. That was it. And you can't even see it because it was so dark and crazy there. Man, the joke was lost. The joke was lost, man. But that was for you so we could have this connection. Did you like it? This whole sermon is just for you. Stay up on the hill. It's safe. Things are good. Goliath does not stop, you know, shouting his yap. For 40 days, the guy stands in the, right in the valley and says, Come at me, yo. Come at me. And God's people stay. But what's overlooked here is that though I walk in the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Evil is not to be feared here. See, and this is what's interesting. Is that it takes somebody either incredibly arrogant or I- I- idiocy to motivate you to want to go down in the valley. And it's interesting is God had his guy, right? And that's David. That's our hero of the story. Is David is standing there listening to the scenes. And by the way, he is going every day. David, the Bible tells us, is doing this loop because it's 14 miles from his house to the battlefield. He has brothers who are in the army. So it's like his dad keeps saying, like, take him food. You know, like, you're the courier. You are the Uber Eats of the ancient world. And he's going back and forth. And then finally, he's like, 40 days later, are you kidding me? What is going to happen to this dude? Who is going to stand up to him? And his brothers are like, shut it and, and, and get us some Gomez, right? Like, just go. It's not your place. And yet that's just not enough for David, right? Verses 36 and 37. As he runs his yap, they're like, hey, 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 king, this is a guy who wants to fight the giant. Like, take him. I, we know he's 5'3", but, you know, 5'3", 9 foot. There's not much right there. But David's like, look. I've lived in the fields. I'm a shepherd. And I've killed me some bears and lions. Like he's the Davy Crockett of the ancient world, right? Like I have taken, somebody's like, Davy Crockett, just wiki it later. It'll be great. But look, because he has done this, I'm going to go into the battle. And the one who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. So basically we have... Our hero, the one who says, I will venture down to the valley of death because I am not afraid. But as we look at this text right here, recognize why he's not afraid. Was it just machismo? Was it just a a posture of bravery that he adopted? Was it just that David was just so confident that he, he was tactically brilliant that he could go into battle and win? No. He understood That he can fear no evil because God is with him. It is not about David. It is about the power of the the Lord. And this is why the story progresses so powerfully. Because we have this matchup and it's dualistic, right? God's people on one hill. The Philistines, the evil people on the other hill. The giant who invites you into the valley of the shadow of death for the conflict. And then the hero of God's people who says, I will go to the valley because God's with me and I will win. Like that's a tidy little story, right? Just really quickly, has anybody in here today never heard that story of David and Goliath? 
Okay, because I started off like, you know, 20 plus years ago in student ministry where I would take care of high schoolers and, and kids. And I know that in every iteration of me teaching people the Bible, I've gone through this story and nobody is just like, that's absolutely fascinating. You're saying that a giant was killed by this little guy? Like, people know the story, right? But I think what we miss is how robust this story is because we apply the world that we see onto this story. So follow me here. We have two hillsides. I think I have our pictures again, right? We have our two hillsides and our valley. And our thought was definitely these Philistines are the evil people. And over here, this is God's side. And what does God do? Is like when the good people come through, they win. And the bad people are gone. And we throw a parade. But this is what's interesting is that if you follow the story of the Israelites, what you see is that they don't necessarily embody the goodness that God asks of them. In fact, they become incredibly creative at deviating from that and living lives that are despicable. So as you read through the rest of the Old Testament, what you see is God has to take his kids to the woodshed. In 2 Kings chapter 17, we see that the Israelites sinned against the Lord who had brought them up in Egypt. Did they obey him? Were they good on the good hill? No. They did Philistine-type things on their holy hill, and they're like, God, you're cool with this, because we're the good people, they're the bad people, but they had no thought about how that actually affected the way that they related with God. Isaiah chapter 24, verses 5 and 6. The people, God's people, the Israelites, have ruined the land. It was the promised land. I gave it to them. I said, drive everybody out. This is going to be your land. And then the prophet says, they've ruined the land. They did what God said was wrong. They did not obey God's law. They broke their agreement with God. The people living in this land are guilty of doing wrong, so God promised to destroy the land. The people will be punished. That's not quite the characteristics that we associate with the good hill, right? Keep going, y'all. Amos chapter 3, verse 14, that I will punish Israel for her sins. And then even Jesus, when he's talking about this situation in Matthew chapter 23, laments the idea that it was God's own people that kill the servants that he sends to them. It's not a good thing, friends. And it should blow up our paradigm because we look at the hillsides and we ask ourselves, where is God? We know he's not on the hill in the Philistines. God needs to be on the hill of his people. But the reality is that he is at neither. God dwells in the valley. And you're like, wait, this is, does not make sense because it's the valley of the shadow of death. That's bad things. Like, God is good. How is he in the, in the valley? And I'm telling you, it's the idea that he is in the valley waiting for us to enter. Because even though it's a frightening place, God says, I'm in the valley with you. You aren't going alone. This isn't you versus the giant. This is us versus everyone. In the valley, he reigns. Whenever I would teach this text before, especially in a, a sermon setting, there's amazing research that goes into the accuracy of slingshots in the you know, first millennium BC. And a slingshot that we have isn't like that Y thing between a stick. The sling that they had was a rock nestled in a little pouch. And they would swing it out here and then figure out how to release it. 
And they've actually done studies of Bedouin societies and have found archaeology that leads them to believe that a good slingshot could hit a slingshotter or a slinger, whatever we're calling them, he could hit a target 20 yards away with incredible accuracy, like a very small, minuscule target. And I would read all these scholars talking about 1 Samuel 17, and they're like, this is how David, you know, because when he was in the wilderness, there wasn't much to do. You know, there, there's none internets, right? So it's like, it was him, sheep, and slings, and he had this idea. It's funny because when David talks about killing bears and lions, everybody, you know, they're just like, yeah, because he was really good at the slingshot. You would not kill bears and lions with slingshots because you would hit the bear, and the bear would be like, seriously, I will eat you now. What we want to do is make David's slinging the focus right here. And I'm not going to say that he couldn't hit that small target. But friends, even as such, with an armored guy, and they're like, whoa, he picked up the singular place that there was nothing. I'm going to say, don't read into this too much and understand is that this was a miracle, right? We're just like, no, David was the better warrior. He became a warrior, but I'm going to tell you in this incident that the fact that the rock went through the air and pierced the temple of the giant, had little to nothing to do with David and everything to do with the God guidance system, right? That God allowed that to happen. And the reality is, and this is the best part of the story that a lot of people meet, or a lot of people forget, is that then after the rock hits, everybody's like, oh, and Goliath fell with a splat, and that's the end of the story. No, it's not, because David just like, John's over there, and he's like, oh, look, his sword. And he pulls out the sword, and he cuts off the dude's head. Which, by the way, you know, we're just like, oh, that'll be easy. If it's a nine-foot like person's sword it's probably much bigger than five foot nothing David can do so he's probably like you know grizzling through that thing like is this a little much for you all look it's your bible it's not my bible I'm just telling you the story you know David's just like this is rough dude you know like he's just sawing away I'm going to tell you as at the end of it he cuts off the head that's in the bible it's the end of the story I'm going to tell you that that was David's involvement in the valley this is the most David did he's just like okay and then cuts off the giant's head and he's like is there a bag big enough for this how does this work out What I miss in the story and have missed, and probably what a lot of us have as well, is that we want to just give the credit to David being the man of God. But friends, mine through this guy's life, and you realize that as despicable as God's people were, David was way more so. And everybody looks at the incident with Bathsheba and it's like, oh yeah, he killed Bathsheba's husband, whatever. Look at the end of 2 Samuel and you'll see that he was responsible because of his pride. He was responsible for the death of over 20,000 people that he could have stopped at any point, but he was just a little too prideful to do so. So yeah, he killed the giant. He killed the Philistine. He defeated evil. And then he embodied everything that was about him and lived it in the same vein. And somebody's like, boy, that's that's a dark Bible, right? No. Actually, it releases it for you and me because it shows us that when God is in the valley, he wins. And therefore, where you and I sit in relationship to that is to recognize our calling. That I walk through the valley of the shadow of death and fear no evil because, because God is with me. Not because of my brilliance, not because of my ability. But friends, God.
God calls us to walk in the valley. And we miss that because it's much easier on the hills. Now, let me get back to my story. So I go up and I see if my daughter's okay, my wife. They're all good. So then, you know, we're still out on the, they're still out on the street right there. Like the police car's right in front of me. And I'm like, I better go back outside, right? Like I need to be back in control of the scene because that's what I do. I'm brave. And as I'm getting down there, uh, by that time, by the way, I think I did leave my baseball bat. And I get to the bottom of the stairs, and there's this lady walking up the sidewalk. And she's an older lady, but she's really gentle. And there's this whole scene right here where the one officer is talking to the crying woman. There's a handcuffed guy on the curb, and she's just like, what, what happened? And I was like, well, I heard this commotion, and I came out. And the guy was hitting him, but I like stood there and I had the bat to his chest and I was like yelling him, I was like, I'm going to end you. And he, he didn't. And then the police, you know, or we got through, the police showed up. You know, I'm, I'm telling her this story. Basically, I'm weaving through the glorious nature of Steve and how wonderful it was that he was in this situation. And I kid you not, her response to me was, oh. How horrible for that lady. And I just, it didn't occur to me at the time. I don't know if it was adrenaline, right? And I'm like, yeah. But I didn't hear it. So I went over because the cop had dismissed like the lady at that point, and this lady just went over to her. So I'm over telling him, I was like, look, this is what I saw, officer. This is what happened. And the drunk guy, and I, he was a little inebriated. I say drunk, which was another reason why I'm like, I got, dude, I can take a drunk guy. You know, like, they just wobble. And I'm talking, you know, to the cop, and that guy says, you're a bleeping, bleeping liar. So then I go down, because he's on there, and I'm kneeling in his face, and I'm just, I am pointing, I am so close to him. And I, again, used my non-church words that would make my mother wonder how I could kiss her with my mouth. And I'm just saying, let me tell you something, you bleepy, 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 you know, and then there's something of me you know, pushing out my male angst. And at that point, my adrenaline's pushing again. And I just start to walk inside. I was like, because uh, I told the officers, I'm like, I'm sorry. They're like, you're cool, dude. Like, we, we get it. I start to walk back in. We had stairs that would lead up to our condominium. I look over the shoulder, and that woman from the sidewalk had her arm around the lady. And she had her nestled into her jacket. And she was running her arm across her in a loving way. So I look at that and I get back inside because my adrenaline's flowing. And I sit down in my chair back in front of the TV where I was. I just start to think about what had happened. And in that whole incident, my thought was more about me being the hero than for me actually doing what I came to the city to do which was to relate the comfort of Christ to somebody else. And that point, it just hit me. I was like, oh, man. Like, I interjected, but then I just dropped the baton altogether. And this random lady who didn't see anything picked it up, and she was the one who was actually helping out. And then I was like, it might be nice of me to, to like, help out this lady somehow. And what had elapsed was just minutes. It wasn't hours or anything, but just a few minutes later, I'm just like, yeah. So I go back out to the street, and everybody's gone. 
They had already taken the man to the police officer. Um, I don't know where the two women went. But then I just started to think. I was like, wow, Steve. You had painted a story where you were the hero, and yet really, it wasn't you at all. It was that lady who wasn't involved, who wanted to make sure that that woman in a horrible situation felt the love of God. We value safety. And even in the midst of that safety, we value weaponry, right? And for me, I thought going to that valley meant me wielding a baseball bat, bat just victoriously. And we get fixated on David and his five stones and his sling. When in reality, the most powerful weapon in this story that I see wielded was the lady who offered herself in love as a comfort to somebody in need. We live in shadows of gray. And every once in a while, light enters into the valley. But it's more fleeting than it ever ought to be. But that's why God wants you and I to live life in the valley. And what's interesting is that a lot of us in this tribe have been able to leave the hill of the Israelites, right? Some of you, that's why you're finally back in church, because you grew up in these Christian settings that were actually so lacking love that you're like, no, I've got to leave this hill. And you like excitedly ran to the other hill because you're like, look, among all these people where God is distant and stuff, this is where I can be and I can help them. But friends, recognize that as much as they exist, they're still on the other hill. So before we lift up either hillside as being better than the other or more in touch, what we have to see is that it's the valley. It's the valley where God lives. And we're called to be there. So as we think about this world in which we have to maneuver, where there's so much ignorance and violence, and then so many people using the scriptures to present their different ideologies, recognize that all these things, ideologies, politics, um, just vilification, it, it, it's on the hillside. God's in the valley. And we need to be with him there in the valley. Psalm 23, 4, even though I walk in the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Heavenly Father, more so maybe than ever, at least within the last hundred years, so, uh, years or so of American history, um, lines of black and white have given way to shades of gray. And there are many times, Father, where we want to position ourselves as the heroes in the story, that we stand for you, what is good and what is right. But it is that thought, Father, that blinds us from the reality that we are Philistines, that we sin against you, that we want conquest for our own sake and not for your glory. 
So our prayer, Father, whether we go willingly or whether you drag us kicking and screaming, is to pull us into the valley. It's frightening. And it can be scary. But God, you walk with us there. And if for no other reason, we must go. So for my sisters and brothers here who this morning will traverse the valley of the shadow of death this week, give them strength, your spirit, and a spirit of repentance to understand, Father, that there are none righteous. No, not one. But we have righteousness through your son, Jesus. We were honored to worship you today and we lift him high in the name of Jesus. Amen.